Welcome to Percussion Perspectives, a podcast by Henrik Knabor Larsen and Håkon Steine. Each episode of Percussion Perspectives features one or more musical artists in conversation about musical education, practice and aesthetic and sociological perspectives. Hello and welcome back to the 15th episode of the Percussion Perspectives podcast, which features German percussionist Vanessa Porter. Vanessa is one of the most versatile and active percussionists in her generation internationally. Her programs often combine composed works with improvisation, also employing electronics, theatrical performance and visual media. In the upcoming season, she will perform as a soloist as a part of the European Concert Hall organization, ECHO, in the most renowned European concert halls, such as Concertgebouw Amsterdam, Elbphilharmonie in Hamburg, Barbican Center in London, the Paris Philharmonic, L'Auditorio in Barcelona, and many, many more. She collaborates regularly with renowned composers such as Georges Epergis, Jennifer Walsh, and many more, and is also regularly performing with other groups such as Ensemble Moderne, Ascolta Ensemble, Le Percussion de Strasbourg, in addition to her duo with her sister. In our chat, which took place in February of 2022, we spoke about education and the transition from education to professional life, about the term perfection applied to musical performance and the world of music competitions, about commissioning new works, about life on the road, and other topics. Vanessa releases three albums this year, and you may check them out on the link provided in the information section. And with this, we bring you Vanessa Porter. Okay, so Vanessa Porter. Vanessa, welcome to our little podcast and thanks for taking the time and uh, for joining us. And we're excited to hear about your insights and all the experiences you had in the last couple of years. You, you're currently on the roller coaster of the Rising Stars uh, concert program where you perform all over the world uh, in concert houses and you design your own solo programs and whatnot. So um, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, maybe we can start a little bit with your with your background as a, as a music student, not that many years ago, actually. So you 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 have that maybe still fresh in your memory. So how, how what led you into being a percussionist? And take us through that whole time period and 
what is still relevant for you where you are today in when you're performing as a soloist. All right. So thanks, Hakan, for the invitation um, to your podcast. Mm. What made me want to become a percussionist is um, actually a really good question because I do not really have an answer. As my father is a professional percussionist, um, I came to the instrument as a really young child. And he has a private school for percussion, like directly next um, to our home. So one part is the living area and the other part is the percussion school. That means for me, there was not this um, specific moment when I said, I want to be a percussionist. Um, because in my childhood, um, it was everywhere. So, Nevertheless, I started with the piano first. A um, few years later, I played the drums, carried on with marimba and vibraphone and Latin percussion. And I landed in Stuttgart at um, Hochschule für Musik und Darstellende Kunst where I did my bachelor and master degree. Um, I went to London um, and studied at the Royal College of Music and finally to Musikhochschule in Lübeck um, to work with Johannes Fischer. Um, so, yeah, what is still relevant for me when I perform? Um, I think what has always been important and will forever be important for me is um, that I feel the music, um, the improvisation, the pieces um, on which I'm working. So especially in my solo programs, there's always a kind of private or emotional relation to my life. Um, so yeah, I have the luck to play concerts right now and get the chance to, to form my own programs with my own concepts and show them uh, to the audience. Great. A lot has happened in the last four years, but maybe before we go into that section, maybe you can uh, just briefly take us through uh, your time as a student and maybe you, what is a condensed version of what you still carry with you or like draw on today, like only some years later from the different schools. When I studied in Stuttgart, um, which was the main time of my studies, I did a lot of competitions and I did a lot of auditions for scholarships. I think nearly one competition each semester so that was crazy and um, I worked a lot and have thereby got the chance to learn a lot of repertoire which I probably would would not have learned without the pressure of a competition so that is definitely one of the good things of my time um, in Stuttgart but um, let's say but one big focus was on being a perfect whatever that means a perfect percussionist like play the requested pieces in the correct tempo um, with the right notes with a good technique don't forget to look chilled and relaxed while you're playing all these pieces and all this stuff and I did this like a lot really a lot um, because this was also the only important thing in my young musician's head if if you are one of the best in terms of playing, people will pick you for concerts. And of course, it's not wrong to have a good technique and to learn the craft of your instrument. That is not what I want to say. But in my studies, I often had the feeling that exactly that was one of the most important aspects. And after studying, I realized that the world inside the university is not the same than the world outside of the university in a, in a good way and in a bad way 
so I think in general the focus in universities are sometimes a bit too much on these competitions and the pressure to be the best in your field. So a few years without university, I just realized that this is not what people want to see. The competition world is not our audience. Um, this is great for the percussion world to meet other people, um, young musicians, to meet teachers, to talk with them, to play with them. But um, but it is also very much our bubble in which we live, I think. So also when, when I am going to concerts or in general, when I meet a person, I don't want to see perfection. It is not interesting for me at all. So, so I want to see a human who makes mistakes, um, who tells a story, and who is just a normal person with a with a passion for music and art. Um, so, what is actually a good thing that I took away from my studies is that I met a lot of people, learned a lot of pieces, improved my technique as much as I could. And this knowledge, these works, I have them all in a in a drawer and I can take them out whenever I want. So competitions have never broken me because I'm not an extremely nervous or anxious person in general. But I do know some colleagues for whom it was not so easy. So I think it is dangerous and we should have a look at this competition system um, and see in what direction it takes some people. Mm. This is a good chance maybe to uh, to open up this discussion about competitions and this is something you mentioned, um, the word perfection. Um, what is perfect in music? What is, when you say you uh, win or lose, um, it uh, reminds of sports and uh, and ma or you know mathematics or something w which is really a, a different paradigm than or the, the arts so um let's open up the 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 talk for your criticism of the competition mindset what is wrong with per perfect and uh, what is your your alternative um, proposal for for education for, for if you're a teacher in some years yourself how do you educate musicians into the mindsets that it's not about only perfect in terms of right notes, right tempo, as you mentioned. I mean, what is wrong with perfect? What, what is perfect? I'm sure my perfect is another perfect than your perfect. And um, again, another perfect from another person. So, so I don't have a plan or the best um, alternative for music competitions. But as you say, the word um, competition or perfection alone is creepy and doesn't um, involve much um, creativity and art at all. I don't have the best style of a competition in my head, but I'm sure we could um, change and rethink some things about this old system of competitions. So for, for example, a few years ago, I did a competition called Creative Award. And I think it was a really good thing. So I had to play half an hour, whatever I want, and show my own music. This must sound very funny for chess musicians, but for us classical people, it is actually something special when we can show our own music at competitions. Um, so I had to improvise, play my own music, and I was not allowed to play a piece that already existed. Um, and this was exciting and challenging for me back then because I was used to take a score, um, to practice, to practice more and, and to play it. 
So I did this creative award and luckily the jury decided that, um, that I win the contest. So again, the question, what is win, what is lose is, um, I don't know. I think we should never win and lose in terms of music and arts, but, mm. but what is the, um, um, alternative word in a competition, a competition without prizes is not a competition. Um, right. So the word competition involves winners and losers. Um, maybe we should only think about the word of this thing. We should exclude competition and take uh, event or anything else. So, But this first prize um, gave me the confidence to say, okay, I'm not only a music machine which um, eats a lot of notes and and then spits them out a few weeks later. Um, so I think this kind of competition, or let's say event, um, should be more in the focus, much more. Um, and then it's even hard to say this is better than the other. This is the third prize and this is the first prize and this is no prize. Um, because, of course, it is much more difficult to compare and um, evaluate different things than when all musicians play exactly the same thing. It's easy to sort out then. Um, with different styles, it's more about taste, more about feelings and um, about the overall performance. Like, does this person manage to bring the, audio, the, the audience into their own emotional world? So in general, um, percussionists do not have so many works and, and repertoire for their instruments. And if you then also always have to play the same pieces, the same tempo, the same dynamics, it gets super fast, super boring. And it doesn't mean that I do always play my own works and only premieres, um, definitely not. I do play pieces by composers alike and pieces I know that my audience will like um, pieces they have been played before of course I do but I always try to to play and find pieces where I can bring bring in my own interpretation and don't go on YouTube beforehand to to listen to any um, to, to to other performances mm. cool I have many follow-up thoughts and questions um, one is what is the best advice you've gotten so far about how to develop your creativity within the framework of a score, of a written score, when it comes to injecting your personality into the interpretation and not being, like you say, uh, learn the music and <laughs> kind of repeat it back out. Yeah, I think the best advice is not to go on YouTube, Spotify or any other channels to see what other musicians have done before. In, in the best case, you have um, seen a piece live once and it touched you and you want to play it yourself. And then, of course, you have an impression of the piece, um, but you may not remember exactly every moment and every movement and, and playing style of the performer. So, I don't know, take the score, try to understand the composer, to understand and research the time when the piece was written and then start to learn it. And after that, it is kind of not possible to do exactly the same interpretation than another musician did. But if you go on social media to see which sticking, which, mel which melods, which agogics um, he or she did, like, okay, that must be the easiest um, way so I simply do the same 
um, then it will be exactly the same version and nothing special and nothing you could call your own at all. So your proposal is uh, kind of historical stylistic research and then kind of micro detailed research into the score, into the notation. Yeah, and, and also choose a composer and see what he or she wrote for other instruments, not only for percussion, just to see the whole thing. Mm. And um, if it is possible to create your own story with experiences you've had, it's fantastic. So sometimes it doesn't have to be the story and idea that the composer had and wrote in the preface. Quite the opposite. I think if you if you have your own story, um, it is much better. For example, Apergis, um, Le Corps à Corps. I have this piece for many years in my program because I love it and it is always a little different because I am always a little different. And of course, I'm not the same person I was um, four years ago. So things happen in our lives and shape us and sometimes make us um, see things with a new um, perspective. And that's how it is in art too, of course. And also because audience are always different. Sometimes they laugh when I play Apergis and I am super confused. Um, sometimes they cry or they leave the room. And And his story is, um, to finish this part, that the piece is about a car race. And um, I am completely not in that topic. So I have my own story and I think everyone um, should do that. Mm. My story is um, also about a chase or a hunt. Still, especially as a woman, when you're outside and it is dark, I think almost every woman had the situation. You have um, you have some noises behind you and you are like, shit, what can I do? Um, there's nobody else here. And yeah. yeah, this is maybe a little bit um, close to a car race, but it is it is not a car race. Have you, um, maybe we can add this in later in the episode. It's not really for this part of the conversation, but since we're talking about Apagis, you have worked with him in person, right? And you also commissioned a piece by him, I think. A new new piece for the same instrumentation, speech and tombak. You want to talk about that later or, or now? <laughs> we can talk about it later, um, as you prefer. Okay, yeah. Maybe it's more an artistic profile, right? So, yeah. We were actually uh, in the... The relation to um, what you learn in the education in terms of being this kind of sports person to learn to play all the notes and uh, yeah i was kind of inviting you to criticize the world of competitions a little bit or and possibly also criticize classical music education if you want to discuss that in, on a more general on a more global sense like the world of pianists and violinists and, and then kind of percussion all of a sudden becomes a part of this world although modern percussion in its in beginnings is a very experimental art form and then it kind of gets drawn into this world where everybody plays as if it's a bit of a sonata uh, and you don't have to to take the invitation it's, uh, it's an open one and we don't have to include this at all in the in the edits but um, if there's anything criticizing not in the sense of saying it's shit but like can we discuss that in a sort of the good sides and the bad sides kind of talk of yeah. course, there are good sides and bad sides. Um, I mean, it's a good thing to have a classical music education, to get the possibility to work with amazing teachers and learn the instrument as good as possible to get better and better. 
to to feel more comfortable with your instrument, with the situation of an uh, audition, a concert, audience, and with the whole situation of pressure. Because um, in our profession, um, we will always have to deal with some kind of pressure and and also with fears. I think that's that's what this profession entails. Um, that's what the situation brings when you decide to perform in front of an audience. So, of course, it is good to deal with it already in the studies. I just think there could be a more artful way of dealing with it. Um, I am very grateful about my time in Stuttgart, London and Lübeck and about the possibility to have been in all these um, competitions because it was good for me personally. And it worked for me personally. Um, but we are all extremely different humans and especially we artists are, are often very um, sensitive and soft people. So um, we have one system and one way in education for millions of souls. Um, and for some people this kind of training and system of, of our competition culture um, is not healthy. Um, We are lucky that our education helps um, to train a lot of professions. I mean, we can become teachers in music schools, um, elementary schools, universities, be a freelance and do workshops. We can go to the orchestra, we can play solo or ensemble concerts, and we can choose a mix of these all possibilities. So also we can we can be trained quite easily and do music management or anything else. So what I want to say, we have so many possibilities to find our way. But in the studies, this is not really a topic we talk about because the highest goal is to get a soloist and play as many concerts as possible in the big halls. And this is, um, of course, even harder with instruments like um, piano or violin, I know. Um, but the percussion world is not so far away from, from this culture. And and again, this um, that is not the life goal of all these people to get a soloist. Even if they are pushed into this role during their studies, some realize after a few semesters that they are not necessarily 100% um, made for this very hard and crazy life of a freelance soloist because that's what it is. And And then they get lost quickly and we should really keep an eye on these people as well and show them all the other hundred possibilities he or she could have in our in our fantastic job so so my point is not to criticize um, or even abolish the en entire classical education but rather to to expand it yeah well, i think the biggest problem of competitions are not the students who go to competitions I think the biggest problem are the organizers and how to communicate about this competition. Um, you have to send a video, are invited, and then they say, okay, the first round is this piece, and the second round is this piece, and in the third round, you sometimes can choose a free choice piece. And you think, cool, I can play whatever I want in, uh, in this um, third round, what fits me best. But actually you don't because you play the pieces they want to hear. You see who is in the jury and you know, okay, this guy loves this music and I can't play 
a Globoka when this guy is on the jury because for this guy, Globoka is not percussion because um, I can't show how fast I can play and show my super technique with this piece. And then you think not about the music uh, and about your personality and about your concept. You only think about how can I win this competition with this guys in the jury. And I think this is a big problem also that there are most of the time only percussionists in the jury, which again totally supports that um, mistakes are forbidden. But our audience is not um, percussionists, so nobody cares if I play the note with this mallet or with the other one. Um, but our audience cares um, if there is a person on stage who feels what he or she is doing or not. So for example, at the Deutsche Musikwettbewerb, I think it is a super good idea that in the, I think in the third round that the jury is mixed and not only percussionists, which opens the mindset of the whole thing um, completely. But are competitions good career vehicles for people to get their names out there and to have more concerts and generate uh, activity through that? Mm, I don't know. To be honest, I don't really see that. I mean, as a percussionist, I follow who won this or that competition. But this is often a very short-term success and hype. I don't really see that these winning percussionists are the new superstars in our percussion bubble. Um, and as always, of course, it totally depends uh, on yourself. If you are hardworking, like um, really hardworking, then you will make it. You will um, um, achieve your dreams with or without competition. Mm. If you don't do this, um, winning the competition will not help you. Maybe you are a superstar when you when you have both. I don't know. I don't have it. Mm. Does it generate some kind of attention in the classical world, though, uh, that you are invited into kind of, uh, yeah, like a community or, or a scene that is more related to the classical concert uh, management and that kind of uh, environment that you wouldn't otherwise maybe be invited to? So the Rising Stars invites you into sort of the all the the loveliest concert houses in Europe. So, um, yeah. Maybe, yes. I've never really experienced that um, consciously. Sometimes I ask myself um, whether it's really because I've worked incredibly hard on myself and did this competition stuff that I'm lucky enough to be able to play many concerts today. Um, I didn't win a lot of them, actually. <laughs> um, or whether it was simply also a very big piece of luck and the fact of having been in the right place um, at the right time. So maybe both. Um, you have to work really hard and you need to have a bit of luck. I mean, you can never look back and see on how it would have been if you had done a few things differently. So maybe, yes, some doors will open faster when you win uh, one of this big competition. Um, but it doesn't help when you win little competitions, I think. These are good preparations for the big ones. Maybe this is for yourself a good experience um, and you get stronger and you know how to be mentally fit for the big competitions. But I think at the end of the day, It doesn't help a lot. I can only talk for myself and I didn't win a lot of competitions actually and I'm and today I'm happy and it works. So 
So I don't know. It's a hard topic, but um, I do think that if you have a healthy idea um, of a competition, you do it without problems. Mm. Yeah. Um, yep. But not not with the idea to get a superstar because things happen as they happen and sometimes quite differently than we imagined. And then we have to deal with the new situation and sort ourselves out again. But um, that is life. You can't really plan it. And mm. yeah, I don't want to say that competitions are a bad thing in general, but you have to be clear in your head that, um, that you are still a human and not a machine um, who goes to a competition. Right. That's a great advice. Uh, take us through the process right after your studies. Many many people experience a bit of a dip or some sort of, uh, you know, it's where the artistic or or musical ideals sort of meet the harsh northern winds of the real world. That you go and you exit, you, you, you're examined and you have uh, maybe no location to practice, you have no structure. And so take us through that part uh, of your life where you within two or three years you had already established a career so uh, how was that transition for you i always tried to start um these things in my studies like many years ago to look for a rehearsal room and to buy instruments to have concerts with other people to get in contact with festival organizers already with uh, 20 and then this just kept growing and it was not like suddenly I'm in this world and I have no structure and nothing to do. Because I knew when I finish my studies and I have nothing of that, um, I'm lost. Mm. Do you have some kind of um, advice there to to the listeners uh, in terms of getting your name out there? When you say contacting concert organizers, you send tons of emails. You you put a, you set aside a special time every day for that or every week where you just send uh, X amount of emails and you just wait for the answer or you get uh, sleepless nights of no over no answer. How do you, how did you, yeah, you do that? Yeah, I did that. <laughs> um, I'm not doing this now, like sending emails with, hey, I'm Vanessa Porter and I'm a percussionist. Um, please book me for your next festival. But I did it like kind of this um, once, like many years ago. And I did a I did a portfolio like a map, really professional, with a graphic designer, and I spent a lot of money into this actually. Um, I and I sent this map to different addresses, and I think, I think I had like uh, two answers, <laughs> and I was very frustrated. Um, but then I realized, um, okay, this is not the way to go. And suddenly, when I realized this and tried to put some trust in my work and in my future. Um, festivals which I didn't text um, asked me to play at their festivals so from my point of view and from my experience I would not advise to to write to festivals as a private person that is, that is actually um, the task of a good management and the festival makers also know that so as stupid as it may sound I would simply advise to stay with yourself um, always try to do a good job and have a lot of confidence and trust in yourself and in everything that comes. Um, yeah, and also now, of course, um, social media is a big thing. So I try to be active every day and do also this email office stuff every day. It is super important for me that the festivals or my management does not have to wait 10 days till they hear something from me. 
also because um, I hate waiting myself a lot. Um, so early mornings are for emails, sometimes nights when it has to. And I think um, it's just a part of our job, working off emails, taking photos, social media, all these um, things. And in terms of social media, what, which platforms and what stuff is, is relevant for you? What kind of stuff do you put out there and why? I do only upload um, musical content, like no private pictures from um, vacation or cats um, <laughs> that I don't have, actually. Um, there's a little difference between Facebook and Instagram, I think. So Instagram appeals more to the younger generation, while Facebook also appeals to the younger, but still a bit more to the older people among us. But I use both channels kind of, of the same. So, mm. And I try to do a lot of stories. I think this is um, important, like short excerpts from everyday rehearsals, concerts, um, encounters. Actually, just showing what I'm working on. And um, I had a workshop about this um, social media stuff a few years ago with like um, advices and statistics, like how many hashtags you should use, <laughs> how often you should use this or that, and um, how this whole um, algorithm moves. Tell, tell me more. I'm a, I'm a social media dinosaur. I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not on any platform. So tell me, how many hashtags? Um, I hope that no one uh, checks my account now because I also do not always what I say. Um, but a few things are important, I think. So with the hashtags, you should use five or six of them. No, not, not, not more. Um, some people are doing like 20 hashtags and think that this will spread a lot. But, but no, they select um, only one or two posts per week. Um, so you are um, current and constant in people's minds, but not annoying anyone with it. Always check which new tools are available and then use them because um, the algorithm will then show these videos much more to other users because, of course, the new function um, must be shown. In our case, maybe don't um, try to upload every handy snapshot, um, but keep an eye of the quality of the pictures, take attention to the content of how you phrase things. So, yeah, stuff like this. It, it is a big task of how to use these social media things, and I am really not professional with this. Um, but I know or I experience that some festivals contact me and say that they were on my profile and saw that, that I'm doing things, and they invite me for their festival. So, so yes, it's more important than I do sometimes think and it is a lot of work. It is. It is also not done in a in a few minutes. More important than the portfolio, in any ways. What about the email response? Is that uh, more important than the portfolio, yet less important than the Instagram? I think it it depends a little bit of the festival because um, sometimes you have a super young festival and audience, and sometimes a more um, conservative audience and organizers of, of festivals. So they write emails. They do not look on my Instagram account. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I think they do not know that Instagram exists. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it totally depends on who you talk to and who you books you for a concert. Silent for a long time. Long. Shh. No one. No one. 
not only he was silent for a long time left dying so outside no one left dying so outside no one dying <gasps> a drift Drift till I so far after a drift till I not only so far after no one distress only silent no one distress only silent silent for a long time dying no one no one came distress only so far after a drift to die so far after a drift to die no one came signals standings i i was i but no one i i was i but no one i was standing outside myself self signals some Okay, let's um, maybe turn the conversation to towards uh, programming and um, what kind of profiles you're kind of balancing then because you mentioned now that for some programs you choose a different kind of content, which we do all the time, of course, we want to we want to entertain people at, at some level and not scare them away. But in your uh, let's begin with your with your solo programs, which I think are um, on uh, many levels quite um, adventurous. Uh, you commissioned some new pieces for your um, Rising Stars recital, at least the one I saw on YouTube or I think or on your website, where you kind of, um, I'm, I'm not sure if recommission is a, is a good word, but uh, let's just use that for um, for fun. You recommissioned uh, <laughs> a piece by Georges Epagis um, for Tombak and Voice. Uh, and tell us about that process, how you approached, um, he's a kind of legendary figure in the contemporary music scene and how did you approach him what was the nature of the collaboration and yeah so the first contact was like four years ago and he texted me and said that um, he saw my Le Coracor on YouTube actually not he but um, his assistant so and asked if they could put my version on Shosh's website and I was like super happy because as you said for me he's a legend and I love all of his music. Um, and one year later, I had this echo thing, which means that I have a tour through Europe with my solo program. And I have one choice for a commissioned work. So I can choose one composer. And I didn't know if Apergis is maybe too big for this program. I did not know what level of composers we are talking about. So... So I asked, um, is Georgia Pelgis possible? And they were like, uh, well, it is a big name, but let's try. And and they asked him. So And he said yes. And then uh, The Messenger, a piece for Tombak and Voice, um, came out. 
And how was the how was the collaboration? Did you get like insight into the compositional process, the possibility to give feedback, or he just you you got uh, the score, finished score in the mail, or how did that work? I went to Paris and visited him because at that time I thought we want to talk about the new piece, about ideas, um, about instruments. I didn't know that he wants to write for Tombak and Royce. So I went to Paris to his flat and he was like, okay, here's the score. Uh, what do you think? And I was um, super surprised, like, wow, here's the score. We didn't talk about any instruments or about any idea of the piece. Um, but okay, here's the score. Um, so we talked about this first score and I went back to Stuttgart and visited him another one or two times in Paris and played the new piece for him. And yeah, we talked about different things like this is a bit complicated or this goes in another direction. We should change this move or this sound. And after a few meetings, um, the final piece was there. Um, but I would say that, of course, um, the most of the piece came from George, like yeah. 95%. Okay, nice. Um we're into uh, artistic profile and, and, and uh, commissions. I wanted to ask you, what what are you looking for when you, on a, in a very general sense, when you commission new pieces? What qualities are you looking for in a, in a new piece? And what kind of, uh, I mean, a lot of a lot of percussion music has come out of the uh, new music movement, which just means it's kind of it's based on motivated by experiments and uh, you know the the driving force of newness to find new sounds and to find new forms or new new technology. And there's a lot of work done in that regard already in the tradition of acoustic sound research. There's a sort of saturation. You know what what do you look for when you commission something uh, in terms of is newness an important motivation for you or do you want a certain kind of atmosphere or character to the music or what what things inspire you there good question um i think the most important thing for me is the character um right now when i look for composers or interesting pieces um i always look at at the people they have to inspire me. Um, they have to tell a story, to have expression. That's how I choose music and composers, not only because of the instruments. But I like fancy sounds and new playing techniques, um, new developed sounds or sound mixes. So this is for sure not unimportant for me. Um, but I think it has to be truth in my musical heart and um, and then it is a match. Sounds like a good motivation to me. Um there's one video where you play a, a recital where you could just start and it goes from one piece to the other and you have some kind of transitions built in. Are those, um, I mean, there's David Lang and the chorus and then there's, I think, two vibraphone solos at the beginning, at the end. Are those commissions? And did you commission those as a sort of to fill in the, the gaps of this kind of macro form of the recital? Um, whenever I play a solo concert or even before when I plan it, I want to tell a story. And these transitions are very important for me because I am very bored of concerts where piece after piece is played and without context, with clapping in between. It is like an, like an uh, line work in the factory to go through the top hits once. So I don't like that anymore. Um, especially not in percussion solo concerts. 
so these transitions in my um, current program are not gap fillers, but um, rather part of the whole. So first of all, I write down a story which is in my head or is um, currently a topic in my life. And when I have the story, I choose um, the pieces and the music. Sometimes, sometimes music inspires me for the story. So yeah, it is. Um, um, it's a two-way process, um, and it is the same in this recital. You probably saw on my website. Um, it's called Folia Deux, which means the craziness of two people. Um, so people around me have um, this. Um, diagnosis and um, it's crazy it's hard and it's um, a mental thing and I wanted to make a program with this because people outside do not do not know um, fully I do um, as a as an illness so so both of the vibraphone pieces are commissioned pieces and I talked to the composers and said, okay, this is the story and you will compose the last piece of the story. And the program is really hard and maybe a bit stressful for the audience um, because there are many strong pieces and not so much time to relax uh, during the concert. So the last piece, for example, has to be very peaceful and give the audience a good feeling. Because Valiade is, is also a very lovely story it is not only dark and so um this commissioned pieces came out um out of this whole story can you talk more about that how you build a recital program thinking about dr dramaturgy and storytelling and uh, that you kind of start on a very global scale do you have uh, um assistance there or do you just dream these things up yourself or what kind of competence do you feel is needed or did you need to learn some skills that you didn't already have as a musician to in order to develop these these ideas i don't have a special um assistant with whom i always check my programs or who helps me to um, de um develop them and of course i'm not a um dramaturge or anything like that like when I work with these people, it is always a blessing for me because I can learn a lot from my own programs. Um, I think I, I do always talk to other people, not only musicians, and talk about my ideas. I think this is um, the most important thing to create a program, not only to enforce what is in one's own head, um, but to have a, like a certain vision. Right. How do you prepare for... Um for solo recitals and typically important the recitals in a, on, in a big concert hall venue. Um, can you tell us about the preparational phase? How do you learn the music? How do you deal with anxiety, stage fright, uh, stress levels, um, time management, sleep, <laughs> intake, rest, all these, all these issues? The work-life um, balance as a musician, yeah. Um... Self-care is is not my special field in which I am um in which I'm super good in. I mean, I'll be 30 in a few months, so I don't want to sound like a 70 years old talking about his life, but of course I'm very often tired and exhausted and um tend to work a little too much. But for me it is fine as it is right now. I think I have a really good time management but it is always a bit too much so so maybe i don't have a good 
time management. Um, like if I have um, various things to do on one day and gets later and later, I'm not like, okay, I should stop and sleep because I have to wake up um, at six the next day. So I will definitely do all of the things at this day. Um, so yeah, I'm not super good in that self-care things. Um, but what helps, um, I'm, I'm very lucky that I'm not this super nervous person before concerts. So I don't have sleepless nights usually. Because I always know that this is just music. It is just a concert and um, the world will continue to turn if I make a mistake. So even when I do two or three or hundred mistakes. Um, our planet is very small when you look at it from above and it is always important to remember that we should really push some things and fears aside if they are not good for us. Um, also, when I'm invited to universities or to schools to do a masterclass, I always want to talk about these topics um, because these are important issues that are often not discussed, like fairness. Um, fairness uh, or, or the worst thing we can do is to be afraid of going on stage. We are doing this for 10, 100 or 1,000 of people and maybe none of them would go on stage and play a piece or tell a story in front of so many people. So it is already very brave that we are deciding um, to do that. And I try to talk to young musicians about that and try to bring them down from this mindset and not to just not to take everything too seriously. Well, I mean, one could potentially understand that the whole mythology connected to uh, maybe performing classical music, um, which has less of this kind of uh, show show business. It's not only about looking great, but it's, I mean, to put it bluntly, very, very difficult to get all everything right. And there are like, everyone knows every note, a lot of the time at least one can easily understand that people get nervous because of this especially if you p play really famous music or well-known music or yeah so um when you what i get from you is you kind of try to make it casual or you think <laughs> if you see everything from from the universe universal perspective it's everything gets rather small and not so important but i um what is your trick to have this kind of casual take on that like if you play a very famous piece and you know there are thousands of listeners out there or uh, how do you deal with that uh, that idea that nobody cares <laughs> i think there are people who know exactly what it means to be on stage and play a program um they have probably also made mistakes and know that it is part of it and that it is absolutely human and the other people, that people who complain when a wrong note is played, are people who um, wouldn't have the um, the courage to go on stage and show themselves naked and unfiltered in front of audience. And then I, I only, I honestly don't give a shit because mm. I don't care about those people. We are not machines. Um, we can have good and bad days, just like any normal worker who for sure is not always doing the same great job on every day. And if a concert day takes place on one of our bad days, um, perhaps because we have um, um, physical complaints or we are busy with other things in our head in private, then we can't always give the same performance. I think this is very important to understand. 
And yet it is very important to allow um, bad days and also mistakes and to accept mistakes and to forgive ourselves um, mistakes. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, of course, you can support this thinking by not necessarily playing works that you are extremely afraid of. So uh, personally, I... I rarely play a Bach in a big concert hall if I know that I arrived there already a bit stressed because um, something else was going on before. Then I, I don't play it. So I protect myself by deciding what I play. And Bach is, for example, crazy for me. So so this is the super simple trick. <laughs> I think um, you don't have to play pieces if you don't feel good with it. There are so many other ideas of our repertoire of music um, and there's none saying that you have to do that. We are not in the competition anymore. Um, but I mean, if you can play Bach without stress, um, go for it because um, it's wonderful music. But, um, but have fun. Is there a sort of loneliness connected to playing a lot of solo recitals? You're on the road by yourself, you're in the hotel room, there's like nobody there to... like. <laughs> You don't have like a team of psychologists and uh, physiotherapists to take care of your body or something. It's a kind of lo loneliness of things. But um, yeah, maybe if there's something to say about that, that's maybe interesting. I mean, the biggest price you have to pay um, is that you have less private life and you have less um, constant life. For example, when you have friends um, around you who are not musicians, um, they are free on weekend. Um, they meet on weekend. They have party and brunch and all these funny things. Um, and you are most of the time not in town on weekend. So, yeah, but but this is kind of okay for me because I am good uh, when I'm alone. I'm, I'm not this person who has to have 100 people around me all the time. I'm super happy when I'm alone, but there is a difference between um, being alone, which means I am here in my hotel room and nobody else is here, and like um, um, solitude, which means you feel alone. So to be alone and to feel alone. And to be alone is not a problem uh, for me, but sometimes, of course, I do also feel alone um, because... You are in a hotel in the nowhere um, because I'm not only playing in Berlin, Cologne and London in, in the cool cities. I do also play in like um, 1000 people, cities or villages um, somewhere in the off. And these are the moments when you maybe sometimes think, um, do I really want to do this till I'm 60 or are there any other things in my life? So, yeah, this is the price, of course. But again, I love this um, so much what I'm doing. And I, I love the music. And I also love to meet all these different people. So um, for me, um, personally, it is better to have five close friends um, than to have 100 um, semi-close friends. And yeah, it's a good concept for me right now. What are your go-to uh, anti-loneliness techniques when you are in the village alone in terms of maybe extra musical things reading or meditating or jogging or whatever it is that's also a bit of a deciding factor in which phase i'm in at that moment so most of the time it is only our head who says um, you are alone but actually you are not because you have friends and you have family and everything is fine um, but sometimes you have these phases so 
what I do is um, is reading. So there are months in which I only read a lot of books and do nothing else. And then, of course, um, I ring my friends. Um, they are spread all over Germany and Europe, and we don't see each other um, often, um, which is why we talk on the phone a lot. Sometimes only 10 minutes, and then everything is fine again. Um, sometimes you just need a familiar voice to tell you that everything is okay and you are not alone. Um, mm. But I don't have that one thing that I always do when I feel alone. So sometimes it is a glass of wine and sometimes it is Netflix or cooking or a bottle of wine. <laughs> right. Um, in terms of next steps for you or kind of motivations, um, where do you see the next period in your life taking you? What What is the sort of way forward for you in terms of developing more programs more type of ensembles or more repertoire what do you want to kind of bring out to the world into the world that um with which has your signature on it right what sort of qual quality is is your quality i i have no idea where i will be in two three four years um the plan is um to develop my own programs more and more um with things i'm interested in um programs with uh, cello with dance our topics right now always to rethink what is important for me um, what would I like to do next um, which step is the next or is it better to stop here for a little while so I think I never want to stop um, um, questioning myself and just keep doing programs meet interesting people and hope hope that people don't get tired of me and uh, my music <laughs> and if it is like that I will find another way um to have a happy life, I think. Yeah, you can only pray. I'm not sure if this will help, um, but maybe. Yeah. Okay. Great. In terms of yeah, you say you want to develop more the chamber format, and so you really feel you belong in the chamber chamber format. You don't think about going into orchestras, playing big recitals with with orchestras as a soloist, uh, or going into multimedia, or going into so you want to kind of keep developing the solo duo dance chamber format. Yeah. Yeah. Also, solo is for me not always solo-solo. Like um, Folie à Deux is my solo program because I play solo pieces. But I um, also combine this with electronics. So there's always um, an electronic guy next to me who completes the program. Because only a percussion solo concert is also super boring for me. Yeah. Talk about that. I love love to talk about that with you. The problems of uh, percussion solo and or percussion music in general, and it's sort of where does it really belong in your life, in terms of your own private listening? Do you ever listen to like percussion music in your car or when you go from A to B? No. Uh, exactly. And 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 why? And and but we still keep investing so much time of our lives um, into this kind of weird genre. Yeah. Tell me about. Why you don't like percussion music? <laughs> because percussion music is also very visual for me. And I um, personally like to look at people when they make music or, or in general. I just like to look at people. <laughs> I hope this um, doesn't sound too creepy. And and of course, um, you can't do that with an audio recording. Um, and of course, it is also very much um, due to the repertoire. I I can listen to some pieces twice or more. I can also read books twice. But in our repertoire, I have become 
really tired of listening to the well-known works and there are really not many and so often the same um yeah and i also i think i also don't like how percussion music is in the minds of many people so also composers who choose like 200 instruments for a single piece and you are like hey I'm a percussionist, I'm not uh, Jesus, and I I can get you 100 different sounds out of this one instrument. I don't need 100 different instruments um, for that. And this is much more interesting and, and than to put 100 drums on the stage. So, yeah, this is the usual percussion concert evening. A lot of instruments, a lot of tempo, a lot of action, um, little rest. And I think that is just... Um, that I just do not like this attitude um, very much. So you're not so into much inspired by the kind of virtuosic spectacle, but more about the personal thing and the and the psychology of the artist on stage. Yeah, I think so. So um, I mean that um, contradicts what I'm saying now <laughs> that I'm going to release um, three albums this year, um, and I put my music on an audio disc, but. I still try to choose music that tells a story and is interesting for people. Um, not just play a piece and record it to have it like in the Vita. Maybe this is a final question because we have now one hour. I talked to, to Christian Dierstein about this. Uh, his kind of, what is his take on 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 an album, on the whole idea of making an album in 2021? We don't, uh, we hardly have CDs anymore. The whole, the, you know, the idea of a physical album that you kind of listen to from beginning to end with the streaming thing this whole concept of you know putting on a record and listening from beginning to end uh, kind of exploded and people listen much more in fragments so what is your feeling when you say you got you're gonna make three albums next year what is your do you have faith in the album format still and do you what do you feel is the importance of making albums i think making an album right now yeah is is actually super crazy because it costs a lot of money and almost no one still has a cd player in the car or at home in general the whole world doesn't really care about cds um but i think it is still very important to hold something physically in your hand and not just to be able to play music um random um through a play button so mm. it's exactly the same with spotify like with the um, zufällige Wiedergabe um, is totally ignored that the artist has once thought about an order of songs or about the concept. It is simply um, anonym and random and totally unartistic. So also the prices Spotify pays artists are um, virtually zero. So really nothing. Mm. Unless you are a superstar. But I'm not. So so for me, to make the story short, um, it's nice to record my music on an album without um, thinking a lot about if this is clever or not. I don't know. But uh, maybe to, um, to advertise a little bit, um, on June 3rd, my latest album, Psychosound Color, was released. And here I set 10 paintings of my grandfather to music with different objects, instruments um, and synthesizers. So if anyone wants to check it out, you can find it on my website. And in August, my solo album Folie à Deux um, will be released, what we already talked about. 
and at the end of the year um, we will release a new duo album with my sister Jessica um, who is also percussionist so yeah many CDs this year's 